Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As you may recall in last week's episode, a tall, good-looking 22-year-old young able seaman arrived at his parents' home in Bristol on leave from his ship which was docked in Portsmouth. Two hours later, he went quietly with police officers to the central police station to face the charge of murdering his father. The sailor from HMS Forster was Frederick Albert Smith, born on 27th of November 1916, and the dead man, his father, was George Frederick Smith, aged 50, of 6 Cabot Street, St Paul's. Dr Arthur Taylor, the pathologist at Bristol General Hospital, said that externally George Smith had 34 lacerated wounds on the head and neck. The throat had been cut and the features were completely indistinguishable. The skull had been broken and almost all the bones of the face were broken, and the injuries could have been caused by the chopper and razor. This corresponded with Fred's witness statement, which you heard in the last episode. Word of the Week Hold on to your craniums because this week's word is hibernaculum, which is a shelter occupied during the winter by a dormant animal, such as an insect, snake or bat. Hibernaculum is of course more of a wintry word than an autumnal one and it comes from the Latin in which it means winter residence. It is also generally used in reference to non-human animals. However, as the days grow shorter and the temperature drops, who among us does not find ourselves wishing for a hibernaculum of our own? The plural, by the way, is hibernacula. On the 12th of April, Mr E.G. Roby for the prosecution described the father as... Addicted to drinking, bad-tempered, somewhat violent... Whether he actually resorted to blows or not, I just don't know. 
But at any rate, the female members of his family were afraid of him and he was given to things grossly immoral. When his own daughter was eight, it was alleged he indecently assaulted her through fear at the time she made the statement to the police, which resulted in nothing being done. Fred, the prisoner, stated, I have seen him threatening mother with a knife. This knowledge and the letters I have received from my mother made me very worried, depressed and disgusted. When I wrote the letter threatening to kill my father, I was very depressed. The letter was written in a hurried way. I had no intention of posting it. On the Sunday you came from Weymouth to Bristol, did you have intention of doing your father injury? No, sir. When you came home, had you any knowledge that your father had offered Rose Fives to be indecent with him? No. Did you know before that your father had been attempting to be indecent to your younger sister? No. Tell the court, what effect did that have on your mind? I was disgusted. Further question for you, Mr Sayer. Why did you not speak to him about the matter immediately? I did not know whether to raise this question and then back to my ship, leaving my mother to face my father or say nothing while my father was having his dinner. I was almost blurting it out the whole time. Where did the axe come from? From the downstairs fireplace. I took it up with me. I knew that my father is a dangerous man and would attack anyone on the slightest aggression. I took it to protect myself. Did you know your father carried a knife on his belt? Yes, I was well aware of it. One further question. At the time you went upstairs, did you have any intention of doing your father personal injury? No. When Detective Sergeant A. Rudge was called to give evidence, he said that on April 3rd, he received a telephone message and went to the house. In the passage, he saw Fred, who was dressed in a white shirt, pullover and flannel trousers. In his right hand, he held a razor and in the other, a hatchet. His shirt and trousers were bloodstained. The detective then went to the bedroom and there were many bloodstains on the floor and walls of the room and two marks of a blood-stained palm, five feet up on one wall. After inspecting the body and making arrangements for the deceased and the house, he went to the cells and saw the prisoner being stripped and there were no injuries whatsoever on his body. On April the 4th, Detective Sergeant Rudge was called to Fred's cell in the police station. Fred said, I want you to get some letters from my ditty box and also from a drawer on my ship. I want you to get them because they will help me. There is a telegram in my coat pocket. And so, Detective Sergeant Rudge went to Portsmouth and opened the box and drawer on the ship with keys, which he found in Smith's possession. He took the letters from there. Amongst them was an unposted letter and it was dated a week before the murder. It said... You have got to tell me the truth. There can be no arguments about it at all. Either he has or he hasn't. Myself, I think he has. Looking back over his record, I cannot find one redeeming feature. No wonder that I loathe him and detest him. This is the last straw. I have made up my mind that he has no right to live. I shall do it and take the consequences. When I see Phyllis, that will be the end. She is young and will soon forget about me. 
if you tell or try to warn him, I shall never forgive you. I shall kill him, as sure as I am sat here. We'll continue with this story later, but first, let's put our walking boots on and go for a big stroll. The Bristol to London stroll. The big Bristol to London stroll. Hello and welcome to the big Bristol to London stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes. We're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. Just before you get to the heart of Maidenhead, the Thames splits into two. The Thames, as well as Jubilee River, a hydraulic channel constructed in the late 1990s and early 2000s to take overflow from the River Thames and so alleviate flooding in areas in and around the towns of Maidenhead, Windsor and Eton, in the counties of Berkshire and Buckinghamshire. The name used during planning was the Maidenhead, Windsor and Eton Flood Alleviation Scheme, which was a bit long-winded, so the choice of name for the river was put to the local population in a poll, and the result was a strong preference for Jubilee, as it was being completed in Queen Elizabeth's Golden Jubilee year of 2002, and one of the Queen's main residences is at Windsor Castle, in one of the three towns being protected by the scheme. But as for Maidenhead, where we ended up today, there's been a settlement there since the Romans, with evidence of a Roman villa in the suburb of Cox Green. The name Maidenhead comes from the riverside area where the first wharf, or Maiden Hive, was built as early as Saxon times. Because of its location, Maidenhead became the first stopping point for coaches travelling from London to Gloucester and Bath, and the town became populated with numerous inns. By the mid-18th century, Maidenhead was one of the busiest coaching towns in England, with over 30 coaches a day passing through the town. The late 18th century Bear Hotel in the High Street is the best of the town's old coaching inns surviving to this day. The current Maidenhead Bridge, a local landmark, dates from 1777 and was built at a cost of £19,000. King Charles I met his children for the last time before his execution in 1649 at the Greyhound Inn on the High Street, the site of which is now a branch of the NatWest Bank. A plaque there commemorates their meeting. Among its famous residents are actress Diana Dawes, the Spice Girls, who shared a house there, and broadcasters Richard Dimbleby and Michael Parkinson. And it's not surprising that there are some real gems to discover here. Don't miss the Maidenhead Heritage Centre, where you can fly in a Spitfire simulator, as well as find out more about the history of the area, including the story of the Air Transport Auxiliary, which was headquartered in nearby White Waltham throughout the Second World War. (music) 
let's continue with our story of the avenging sailor. At the hearing, Constable James Williamson told how he took the prisoner to the police station in the police car, and on the way, the accused told him what had happened to his sister, and said, Wouldn't you have done it? Sergeant Charles Box, who was in the charge room when PC Williamson brought the prisoner in, said that while he was writing down the prisoner's name and address, the accused held out his hands, palm downwards, and said, You would think I'd be shaking. And once more made accusations against his father concerning his conduct towards his wife and daughters. Fred seemed quite calm, said PC Box, but admitted that for a man to hold out his hands as he had done was not normal. Mr J.G. Trapnell for the prosecution, addressing the jury, demanded a verdict for murder. He stated that they must exclude all sympathy. It was their duty to bring in a true verdict and a proper verdict in accordance with the evidence. The proved facts made it undisputed that they must return a verdict of murder. He went on to say that there was no dispute that Smith's hand caused the death of his father, It was sad to think that the dead man had behaved in the way he had, and it was lamentable to think that the young man was there on that charge. Counsel commented on the fact that Smith took the axe with him when he went up to see his father. There was no doubt that after the first blow, the father dropped the razor, if he ever had it, and was then unarmed. Mr Trapnell went on to say that the jury must not forget that there were 34 wounds on the face, head and neck of the dead man. He suggested that Smith took both weapons up with him and that he attacked his father not only with the hatchet, but also with the razor. Were they not convinced, he asked, that young Smith came home with his mind inflamed against his father's horrible conduct and chose himself to punish him? The facts show that this was an intentional killing. The question of merciful considerations are not for us, but if they are to be made, you might be quite sure that they will be properly attended to. Mr Skelhorn, for the defence, rose to address the jury. After another stir among the packed court had subsided, he stated that killing a man may be murder, it may be manslaughter, or it may be no crime at all. Justifiable homicide. He went on. Or it may be no crime at all. It is no crime at all when one man is attacked by violence and he repels the attack with violence in order to protect himself in circumstances which placed his life in danger or himself in grave bodily harm. And if in that attack the man is killed, that's no crime. Self-defence. He argued that this was a fight to the death and that this man had no other option but to kill the other man to save himself from being killed. Mr Skelhorn said, I have the responsibility of defending this man on the gravest crime known the law. You have a responsibility which you know is grave. That responsibility was all the greater because they were dealing with a young man of the highest character. The man was a devoted son, and man whom the naval lieutenant had described as a clean living man and of excellent character. 
This man is of as fine a character as ever stood in the dock. The judge, in summing up, said that it was necessary to say something about the father, even though he felt it was distasteful to say bad things about the dead. The victim in this case, though, was a man of violence and a man of low moral character. The judge continued by saying the most horrible part of the matter was the dead man's conduct towards his daughters, especially Rose. Everyone would agree that he was a man who was doing horrible things and placing not only his wife, but also his eldest son in a position of very great difficulty and responsibility. It was the duty of the wife and the eldest son to protect these girls from the outrages which were being made upon them. Yet they could not allow a man to take the law into his own hands. A man might deserve to die or deserve dire punishment for the terrible things he had done. There was no justification for killing a man, even if he was a disgusting brute. After 40 minutes deliberation in the final hearing at the Bristol Assizes on the 7th of July, the jury declared that they found Fred not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. When the trial concluded, Fred's fiancée, his mother and sister went down to the cells to see him. They were smiling nervously and appeared to be delighted by the verdict. Mrs Smith saying, I am, of course, very pleased indeed at the result. Flowers from neighbours filled the sitting room of a home in Cabot Street, St Paul's, Bristol, on Sunday the 19th of February, 1939, where Frederick Albert Smith was reunited with his mother and sisters. Smith was released from jail the previous Friday and returned to Portsmouth with a naval escort Late on Saturday night, he unexpectedly arrived home on special leave. We were overjoyed, said his mother, because it has been a long and anxious struggle, and although he was now free, we did not expect to see him for some time. He is going back to the Navy, and we are looking forward to happier days ahead. We've come a long way in the fight against COVID-19. Many more of our favourite places are fully open for business again. Shops, stadiums, cafes, cinemas and nightclubs. And if we work together, we can keep them that way. But the virus is still with us, so we should all carry on protecting our friends and family. So if you have mild symptoms, don't guess. Take a test and stay at home if you think you could have the virus, even if you've been vaccinated. Let's keep life moving. Find out more at nhs.uk slash get tested. Court news today. When Brian Montgomery was told that his wife, Lynn, was leaving him due to his obsession with Star Wars, he told her, May divorce be with you. Back in the day, facts. And we start off with the 27th of November, 1895, 
when Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel's will establishes the Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel held a vast array of patents, with dynamite being the most well-known. When his brother Ludwig died in France, a French newspaper accidentally published an obituary for him instead. It referred to him as the merchant of death and said, Dr Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Upon reading this, Nobel sought to rehabilitate his legacy and this gave rise to the idea of creating a foundation to award Nobel Prizes, including the Nobel Peace Prize. Towards this end, he left 94% of his assets in a fund to establish this. On the 28th of November 1919, American-born Lady Nancy Astor was elected as the first female member of the British House of Commons. On the 29th of November 1921, the Duchess of Beaufort opened the White Ladies Road Picture House in Clifton. It formerly had a ballroom, billiard room and restaurant, but in 1978 it became a three-screen cinema rather than having a single screen. It is currently operated by Everyman Cinemas and it is the company's first branch in Bristol and it opened on the 20th of March 2016 after a period of decline and neglect. The redevelopment also includes five new flats on the upper floor where the ballroom and billiards rooms used to be. On the 30th of November 1982, Thriller, the sixth studio album by Michael Jackson is released. The album broke racial barriers in popular music enabling Jackson's appearances on MTV, as well as meeting President Ronald Reagan at the White House. It was among the first to use music videos as promotional tools. The videos for Billie Jean, Beat It and Thriller are credited for transforming music videos into a serious art form. Thriller remains the best-selling album of all time, with sales of 17 million copies worldwide. Lastly, on the 1st of December, 1887, Sherlock Holmes first appears in print in Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. But now, my friends, I fear it's time for me to go. But before I go, I'd like to thank those that really bring the show to life. And in this episode, they include Kate Kendall, Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol as well as Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold and John Locke from Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke Radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. 
And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>